Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and this is episode 107, featuring Terrence Cooley, a CIO and Chief People Officer of the United States Air Force. He's currently at the JADC2 R&D Center in Sacramento, California, and today we get a story of why minimalism has made such an impact on his life, what it's done for his leadership style, what it's done for him personally, and how he's even learned that in the first place. He also shares a little bit with us today about what it was like growing up for him and his passion for mentoring others. He volunteers with a youth group, and he's now becoming a foster parent, and what he hopes to impact that person's life with based on his own personal experience. So great episode coming up. I just want to take one quick second to remind everyone to use the link below and join the newsletter, that whole human method newsletter. If you want to get out of your own way and thrive personally, professionally, then this newsletter is for you. We have tips coming to you directly to your inbox once a week. Use the link below and join us today. And before we get started, just one quick note from our sponsors that make this show possible. Today's episode is sponsored by PenFed. They've got great rates for everyone. For more than 85 years, PenFed Credit Union has offered great rates on loans, checking, and savings, serving our military and local communities. PenFed is open to everyone. Helping their members save is how they grow. Go to PenFed.org to see how you can save more with their best-in-class rates, products, and services. PenFed, they've got great rates for everyone. Hey, Terrence, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us here at the DC Local Leaders Podcast today. Well, hey, you know, it's always good to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate you making the time. You're in California, right, Sacramento? I am. It is beautiful. It's a perfect 82 degrees. It'd be 105. We're all doing great out here. Yeah. So Terrence Cooley, you are the Chief People Officer and CISO over at the United States Air Force, correct? Yeah, specifically their Joint All-Domain Command and Control Research Lab, which is called JADC2 because that is a mouthful. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what, uh, what do you guys do over there? Uh, so we're working with a lot of machine learning and AI type applications for taking legacy architectures and communicating with them in a real-time format. There's a lot that goes into what we're doing from a technical perspective. It's really pushing some cutting-edge type technologies. Uh, but you know, that's about as much as I can tell you about that right now. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure. You know, one of the <laughs> one of the things I like to do, especially with the military folks, because I've interviewed quite a few, um, and and everyone has a different reason for why they do what they do. I'd love to hear like why specifically the Air Force? Because I know, I mean, you worked in health and human services. You've done some other stuff within the government, but why did you choose, uh, you know, so like, why did you choose government work and, and specifically the Air Force versus any other department of the military? Okay, well, that requires me to kind of go back a little bit to how I grew up. So I was born in Michigan. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot to work with. My mom was adamant that she was going to put herself through college. Uh, so she would take me with her. Uh, and so I knew education was a big part, was going to be a big part of my life. And as we traveled, my mom married uh, my stepdad, who was Marines. And I thought, you know, I was going to do this Marine thing because the travel you got to do, we went from Michigan to California, Pennsylvania, New York. My parents split off and she was Department of Defense. And she went to, took us to Alaska. Like this, this military thing, this government service thing is kind of cool. You just travel around and get paid for it. And uh, when I was going through finishing high school, I was pretty certain I was going to be in music. Um, when I went to co- uh, college for it, uh, Anne Arundel Community College specifically, I love that place. I found myself changing my major three times. I just couldn't settle. So I was like, all right, I'll just get someone who can tell me what I'll do. And I always had an app- uh, a lot of applications in technology. I used to build computers. I build my own Minecraft servers. I have a lot of fun putting things together and tinkering. Let's figure uh, of all the branches that first come to mind when you start talking about tech, it was the Air Force. I knew after experience with my stepdad that I didn't really want to do the Marines. It's a little too gung-ho for me, but the Air Force kind of had the best complement of technical engineering type programs 
They pay for you to go to school. They send you to a technical training where you learn an application. You leave with the ability to pay for school again, uh, as long as you stay at least three years. It just seemed like a no-brainer. And 11 years in, here I am. Yeah. Did you, and you went straight to the Air Force uh, right out of high school? Uh, right. I did um, three, I was 23 when I joined. So I did a few years of college. When you joining the Air Force, what did you think you were going to be doing? Or how did you think that experience was going to be at age 23? And what's different about, you know, that first couple of years and then even now of, of what you actually learned by being in the Air Force? When I first joined, I was adamant that I would be a computer programmer, not knowing anything about how that works in the military, just how it works in the civilian sector. It's very different in the military. Uh, needless to say, I, I didn't actually wind up. I wound up going in our radio frequency transmission systems, which is what we used to call ground radio and satellite communications combined as one career field. Really interesting stuff. And the first thing I learned how to do was bounce a radio signal off of a layer of the atmosphere to get it on the other side of the planet. It was really a lot of really cool physics type applications. Really interesting. That is not what I thought I was going to be doing. I thought I was going to be putting computers together. There's a whole career field for that and I didn't get it. But yeah. because of the flexibility of this career field, they're kind of a jack of all trades. I wound up doing things from fixing people's refrigerators to setting up entire radio networks that would run over an IP-based architecture so that you could set up in the field actual computer and phone systems like you have an office, but you know, you're intense. How many, and, and so how many countries did you actually get to travel to? Cause I know one of the, at least for the Navy, one of their things is, you know, join the Navy, see the world. Did you get to do a lot of traveling when it came to the air force? I did. My first stop was, uh, Georgia. Uh, I spent 11 months there and then immediately went to Germany for three years. While I was in Germany, I deployed to Romania. It was a hardship tour, you know, living in a castle, eating steaks for $5. It was just a real hardship out there. Uh, and while I was there in Germany, it was so easy to just travel. It was like four hours from Paris, like minutes from Belgium. Um, it was so easy to just travel. I spent a couple of nights over in Prague. And so I got to see a lot of the world just from the lens of driving around on my own. Then I came back. They sent me to Illinois. And then they sent me out here for this unique opportunity. Yeah. How do you think traveling the world and doing that and seeing those different cultures and, and countries and the way that they operate and also just living there and experiencing that, how do you think that helps you be a chief people officer? What do you think that does for you now as an adult to be able to influence people the way you do? Because I want to really get into some of the things that you're doing, both in your personal life and then also professionally. Absolutely. Uh, this perspective change is in, I don't measurable is too strong a word, but the, the way that they look at the world uh, in other countries comes, seems to come from a lot more of a community perspective. So when you're eating dinner, you'll sit next to some random strangers and that's part of the culture. You sit next to people and you get to talk to them and meet their story. Otherwise, it's just like a really uncomfortable, awkward thing. When I was visiting Kaiserslautern, uh, one of their larger cities in, Georgia, in Germany, you would go outside and you see people kind of streaming out of the buildings for dinner where they would share a lot of communal meals. There's a lot of different ways that they approach work in that certain things are guaranteed. Everyone has to work in Germany. And so you have to find a skill and then apply it or the government will help you find one. But they, they, everyone has an opportunity to excel. But a lot of the things that they do from their social programs comes from a, a higher tax basis, but everyone benefits from the service. So they think a lot less individualistic, still individualism there. But they think a lot less individualistic, more community focused. So some of the things we're struggling with now, they've been doing this for hundreds of years. I try to incorporate that into how I lead because it makes it more incumbent on me to come out of my office and meet people where they are. And when I'm able to do that, I'm able to connect at a much deeper level. Yeah. What, so what's it mean to be a chief people officer? Like, what do you do? I think there's a lot of different interpretations. The one I've kind of landed on is you are in charge of the culture of an organization. A lot of time that talks a lot about HR type policies, but because I come from a tech background, I look at it as the intersection between technology and people. How do I make technology useful for people, not how do I make technology easy for me to do my job and inflict that on people? How do I have people who are engaged with what the mission of the organization is and that they are able to effectively go out there, spread our message and do work at a high level? How do I show that I trust them to do that? 
How do I give them the tools they need to be as effective as possible in any way, shape, or form? So that's, to me, what being a chief people officer is. Yeah. And, and so when you're talking to people, you know, what are some of the things that you have worked on on yourself to just be this person that's able to, because I mean, the military is made up of all different types of people and everyone receives information differently, whether it's techno, like technical information or just, you know, coaching of any sort. Cause I know that you do a lot of mentoring, a lot of coaching. What is it that you've done with yourself to become that person? Like, what can we be doing to get better at that? What have you found as being that one thing or those 10 things, those 15 things that you've done over the last 20 years, you know, whatever of your life that have helped you be this person? I think I, one of my competitive advantages, I guess, is that being a military brat, I moved around a lot. So between pre-military and post-current oh, military, I already have a, had to be humbled by not knowing everything about everyone. And so I already puts me in a perspective of just being able to actively listen. That's probably the biggest advantage to any kind of HR or leadership role is really to listen to what people are actually telling you so you can find that problem. And then actionable things you can do. I think just in 2019 alone, I read 300 hours of books, a lot of leadership books, be so good they can't ignore you, deep work, Extreme ownership, probably the top three that pop up in my head. Yeah, Jocko Willick. Yeah. And what those what those books teach you are principles that you can apply in your everyday life about not being accountable specifically. If I make a mistake, I'm the first person to own it. If someone on my team makes a mistake, I am the first person to own it. And I'm always on that line of making sure I don't own too much and take away from what my folks need to be accountable for. But I'm the first person to say, I'm sorry, and I'll fix it. That has been a huge thing because then it tends to a lot of people know, hey, you're, you're being humble and you're, you're actually listening to what I need. How do you know the difference between owning it and taking responsibility versus beating yourself up unnecessarily? <laughs> I usually rely on a lot of feedback. So my commander uh, is very good at coaching. And some of the feedback she gave me is specifically that, that sometimes I do take too much. And I have a, a, a representation I use, like a, a jar of how much stuff I keep in this jar before once it gets full, I start to sweat and I'm starting to get like really anxious. And when I get to a point where it's like halfway, I'm like, I'm not really sure I'm on the right track. It's usually when people start to notice and they'll start giving me like little micro feedback, like, Hey, is everything okay? So I use a lot of external cues to help me. And it's internally, it's just, I I have a high threshold, I guess, for uh, beating myself up that I just have to keep working on because I do so readily accept it so that I can just get to the solution. Yeah. That was one of my favorite things to do for a very long time was just beat myself up. And if I was constantly mean to myself and constantly worried about stuff, then I felt like I was doing everything I could about whatever the problem was. Uh, and, and for me, it just, it never, it became, it was just that constant negative reinforcement. And then I just continued to believe these stories. Um, but, but I love what I love that and, and I've, I've, you know, obviously we're going to talk a lot more about, you know, we did in our prep call. I wish we recorded our prep call actually. That it was, was good. Been, yeah. Um, but you, you're talking about this jar and I love that. I just spent some time in the mountains with, uh, with some special forces guys. They, most of them were army, uh, Chris Schmidt. He was a guest on the show actually. And at one point there was someone that was with me and we were walking and he was asking me, he's like, so how you doing? Right. Cause I had this you know, anytime someone asks me, how's it going? Like I had something positive. I was doing like a yes mantra, which is a big deal for me. I, I do that. It's not necessarily a mantra. It's a chant, a chant, right? And I just kind of repeat the word yes in my mind when I'm working out and it's getting harder or I'm doing something and it's stressing me. I just say, yes, I'm saying yes to the process. I'm saying yes to the results I'm trying to create. I'm saying yes to the experience. Just say yes. Right. I told myself no for so many years. I'm just saying yes. And I was just doing that. But he, he caught me on a, on a, at a moment and he's like, how you doing? And I was just like, you know, like I, I have more in me, but I'm feeling like, you know, I'm feeling heavy. And he used this word saturated. And I never would have used that word to describe. He's like, you feeling a little saturated? Like, you know, you got to squeeze out the sponge a little bit. I need a second here. I need a break. And and when you were describing that jar getting to the top and it's about over, it's about to overflow. That's just, that made me think of that. Like, yeah. I mean, what do you do in those moments though? How do you, when you're saturated and when that jar is getting just about full, it sounds like you, did you, well, before I ask you that, did you make a list of those external cues that you're looking for from other people that you, so that you can be aware of them when they're saying certain things and you're noticing how you're coming off to them? Like, how do you know? 
I have a, a kind of like a, a mental list, but I'm a person kind of like, uh, if you're a four lenses kind of a person, I'm a very high blue, where it's kind of like an empathy type thing. So I'm always paying attention to other people's reactions. And typically when people interact with me, it's kind of like, oh, that goofball is in the room again, because I try to set people at ease. So I'll joke a lot, I'll laugh a lot. But when I notice them kind of, they're kind of like, kind of like lean in and kind of do like an eye raise kind of a deal, or they'll kind of do like a double take when I'm like not on my game. And so I look for little cues like that. I look for moments where people are kind of maybe um, puzzled or perplexed by the things that I'm seeing. I, I lose a lot of expressions. And if it's not like a, if I'm not seeing a lot of smiles, or there's some people who are just always stern all the time, right? But if I see that their their continence has changed, that's usually when I start going, is everything good? Is it me or is it you, right? And it's never like, like where, 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 where do I need to be in this equation is where I try to make sure I'm framing it. Uh, but a lot of it really is context clues based on physical expressions. And then yeah. internally, I'm like the biggest introvert in the world. And so when my, when my actual battery is like depleted, um, I always, I always know because I just, I get grumpy and I just gotta, I gotta get away from everybody. I just gotta get away from everybody. Send me away. I'll take a long drive. I'll go outside to a long walk, but like, I, I have to be in my own space for a little bit to just recharge enough to get back in it. Yeah. Is that what you, so that, is that the, like when that jar is getting full and you know it, you feel it, you just, you, you take the time that you need and give yourself that, that moment or how, how, what that, how long is that drive? Like, how long do you need? How, how long, like, you know, I plug my phone in, it takes all night, but like, what do you need? I, it, it really depends. So there'll be times when I'm briefing a four star or the CSAF or the SECAF or some high level person that just requires all of my attention. And if I'm able to take a break after that, I'm usually good. But what usually happens to those things, we want to do a lot of debriefs. So I, I brief the individual and then I'm walking around with the retinue and then I'm having conversations and I'm just going deeper and deeper and deeper into a deficit. If, I, if it's one of those days where I'm just putting it all on the line, I usually will take the next day off. If it's, I've kind of surged, but uh, maybe 30 minutes is probably all I need. And I try to find that space. Sometimes I only get like five or 10 minutes, but I take as much time as I can. Yeah. See, this all tracks, especially like, you know, just have gotten, getting to know you a little bit uh, before. I know you, you talked about practicing a minimalist uh, lifestyle and anyone that's watching the video, if they're, if they're not just listening (laughs) They, they can see that that's how you live. And, and, and I've been trying to practice more about that, more of that lifestyle in my own life. But so I definitely want to talk about that, but like you just said, you'll take the next day off. Now you're in a high pressure situation and you do, I mean, these are high level conversations within the air force that you're having. These aren't just like, you know, what paper are we going to order tomorrow? And it's, you know, sometimes when people are in leadership roles, it, it kind of feels like we may need to be on at all times and be there. And we work seven days a week. And, you know, me as an entrepreneur, people talk about that but it doesn't sound like that that's what you're practicing. You're doing the things that are required your attention when they are, and you're giving a hundred percent, but then you're actually taking the time. Where did you learn that? Or how did you, did it feel like you needed to give yourself permission to do that when you first started doing that? Oh man. Yes. Oh my God. The, the military is like the biggest believer in you got to give it all the line. And then if you, you take leave when, you know, you take leave whenever it's available. Right. But you're always out there, right? You're always working. The hardest thing for me to do actually was when I became an NCO earlier in my career was learning to delegate. I, very early on in my career, I had a team and I, letting them, trusting them to take things off my plate that I didn't always need to do just because 10 days before I was doing it was one of the biggest, most important lessons I could have ever had. Uh, back when I was at the first combat communications squadron, I was running their combat com, or the combat communications logistics section. We were responsible for shipping all of the communications out across Europe and uh, Africa for all of our teams. And I was previously in charge there, just me and a power production guy. Uh, he left, I took over, and then I got two other folks who weren't even my direct reports. They just in my section. And it was so hard because I wanted to just do it all. But then once I gave them work to do, they did it at a high level. It's like, well, I don't really need to be here, right? And so I was like, all right, well, you know, I, I can take some time off. And then when I come back and say, Hey, go take some time off. I know how to do your job. There's no reason for you to be here. If you can take some time. And then it became like a cycle, like, Hey, we split the difference and everyone gets more time off rather than being one point of failure. Fast forward to here. I have a, a leader who just, the commander just took a week of leave, came back on. It's about to take leave again. Like she sets the tone that like, yeah, we're going to work hard, but as soon as there's a lull, 
you take that lull. You don't just keep working. And so I also try to practice that to show my folks, yeah, I got you. I'll take care of your stuff. Go take leave. Yeah. I mean, look, the mind needs rest and recovery, right? I mean, I, in that same trip I was telling you about, I spent some time with mindful athlete and that's literally what they do. They're former athletes that have become psychologists and, uh, they, 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 they hooked us up to, you know, a bunch of little nodes. I don't even know what they all were. And they stressed us at certain times and measured how our brains respond and the, the, the waves, right. Getting into beta and being more focused and, um, but that's how the brain works. We, we do, we actually are more productive when we can take bursts of intense work followed by stents of rest, right? It's kind of like working out. If you're going to do, you can probably do a hundred pushups, but you might even be able to do 150 if you just did sets of 10, right? Or sets of 15, yeah. um, rather than trying to just bang it all out in one, in one set. Right. And, it, and it's kind of like if the mind and the body are made of the same things, why wouldn't they work the same way? Like you're probably fresher and more, you're better at your decision-making after having taken that leave or taken that rest after just being in such an intense work, uh, stand than you would be to just push it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's essential. And the way I like to try to practice my work, there's, it's looking at what are the things only I can do. And if I'm just focused on those then I have so much more time because I don't need to be involved in every single tactical decision. That's not my role anymore. I have people who that is their job and they do it well better than I can because they're in it every day. And so understanding and recognizing where my strengths are, where I need to be to position my team to be in the best place, where I need to be to position the organization in the best place and moving around and filtering through between the different organizations, different teams, that's where I bring the most value. Outside of that, I have to trust my team to do it and I have to give them the rest while they're, when they are now saturated doing the same tactical tasks and I'm saturated doing higher level tasks. And oftentimes I'll try to switch places with them sometimes so they can sit in some of these executive level areas so they can get some of that experience and see things too, which also breaks them from the monotony of doing a lot of the same tasks that they're kind of like they practiced and now they're ready for something harder. Yeah. And I think it helps them understand your lens that you look at things from too, that, you know, sometimes, you know, I remember even even when I talk to people that I delegate things to now, and, and I remember being the person that was getting delegated to, it sometimes was hard to understand why they would ask me certain things uh, or why they would suggest certain things it almost felt like they didn't know what I was doing. Now, what you did solve both of those problems. One, it, it helped me understand, like when I now being on the other side, I understand like, oh, they just had different priorities and they didn't have a, you know, it's not that they didn't understand or, or want to care about what it was that I was doing. That just wasn't the lens that they looked at it from. And then also too, like, you know, for you going and sitting in their chair, you understand some of their daily stressors to be able to ask better questions or guide in a different way. Um, you know, and I talk about that a lot with like the whole human method and, and, the way that I coach people and the way that I talk to them, it's no one person fills all our gaps. And the whole human method is actually, it's a holistic idea towards, you know, living a life of fulfillment, not just our career choices, but our personal choices and the way that we live and, and asking for those mentors and finding the people that fill those gaps. The ones that I have, like I take relationship advice from people that are in successful relationships, not my single friends. Cause why would I do that? I'll wind up single like they are. Right. No, um, Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's, you know, contribution and service, my financial fitness, my mental fitness, spiritual wellness, meaning like, where do I, you know, am I of service to other people? It doesn't necessarily need to be religious, but all of these things put together when we're working on them, my emotional wellness, right. And that's mental health. That's, you know, the, I have a, I have a pretty strict practice in the morning of a morning routine. And that includes waking up at the same time, working out, a gratitude list, journaling, and then I do quite a bit of reading and I do both audible and hard reading like you can see behind me. But all of that goes into maintaining my mental health and my, my emotional uh, wellness and fitness. And I had to develop that over time. And then, you know, like I said, physical fitness is all in there. I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about like one, your mentors. And, and I know that you mentor a lot of other people, but you talked about minimalism uh, earlier. And, and I, I want you to get, I want you to expand on that. Like what is, Becoming a minimalist, what has that done for you, like holistically in each one of those parts of your life, right? Like by removing some of these other things that were taking up energy, what did it do for you and what did it open up and allow you to do afterwards? Oh God, I love this one. So I think of a lot of work as heavy and light. The heavy stuff is stuff that like you, you don't want to do. Like I hate doing dishes. 
right? So if I have fewer dishes, I don't have to do as many dishes. So even if I'm doing them more often and I'm, I'm doing more reps, my, my actual, I'm not doing one big surge. And then that would just make me miserable. With smaller reps, make my life a lot simpler. So I have fewer dishes. So I hand wash or I put them in the dishwasher, whatever. I kind of extrapolate that to pretty much anything. Anything that's light for me is things that I'm most interested in doing. I don't have to convince myself to do them. Mentoring, coaching, even talking as an introvert is not something I have to be convinced to do. I enjoy talking. It's just tiring. But I didn't really understand or appreciate this until I only owned a two-seater sports car with a tiny trunk. Uh, I used to own a BMW Z4M. Loved that car. I bought it back when I was in Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, and I road tripped from there to here when I PCS'd. Uh, it was an eight-day trip, listening to audiobooks, and I didn't take the freeway. I took a lot of back roads. So, like, you know, you miss a gas station and you start sweating. Uh, but what it taught me is, like, I can only fit so much in this car. I can only carry so many things with me. It's a small sports car. You can have a lot of fun with it, but like it's not the most practical thing. So you have to really focus on the priorities. What clothes am I going to bring? What snacks do I bring? Is there anything else that I might need? Do I need a toolkit in case something goes wrong while I'm on the road? Because I'm going to be out in the back roads, not near civilization. What are the only the things that I absolutely need? Then I take that into my own life. Like I don't really need a lot of stuff. I don't carry with it any of it with me to the grave. So why have a bunch of stuff that I don't need? So regularly, I will clean through my house. I'll offload things, and it's just kind of influenced my thinking on. I don't need to have every job. I don't need to be the best at everything. I only need to be the best things that actually matter. And the more I can align myself with the, the light work that I don't have to be convinced to do, the happier I am. And the lighter I make my heavy work, the less miserable I am. You find your yin-yang balance there, life's good. So, and then, all right, what did you drive before you bought that car? I drove a Hyundai Veloster. How big of a car is that? Was that a big car? That doesn't sound like not a very big car. It's a little front wheel drive hatchback, huge yeah. back trunk. I could fit anything in that thing. Yeah. All right. So, and do you still have that BMW now? I don't. I, selling it was the no. biggest regret of my life. Yeah. Uh, it'd probably be a historic car. What year was it? It was a 2007 or 2006. Oh, you wouldn't. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, so, so where else in your life are you practicing this idea of men? I, I mean, there was a lot there, right? We, we make, so the human brain makes what 60 to 70,000 decisions every day. Right. And, and, you know, I think the statistics are, they change every now and then, but it's between 85 and 90% of them are repetitive. So, I mean, there's one thing there. And if it, it seems like you're just removing some of those, you know, the useless decisions that we have to make, it's the reason why certain people wear the same thing every day. Um, or like, you know, what's your closet look like? What's the rest of your, your home? I mean, we can see that you're minimalist, at least in your, in, in the room that you're in, but where else have you applied that concept and what else did it do for you, you know, in other places that you didn't expect? Like what, what was brand new and exciting to you or surprising to you after doing this? I think it's just how much fresher I felt. So when I got here, I didn't know what I was doing. I had a very broad brief on what it was. I have to wait to get the read-ins. Then when I got the read-ins, I had no guidance. There's no training. There's nothing. So I had to sit down and figure out what does this program, this program need from me specifically? What is only I can do? And I have a lot of experience across the IT and the cybersecurity sector, and I could have done any of that. Uh, but by focusing just on what could I do in X amount of time, I narrowed these things down to key things that if I if this if these things don't happen, there's no future for anything else built on these principles, especially on the cybersecurity side. Once you kind of like start looking at things like, okay, what is it, what is only the work that needs to be done? You stop doing a lot of these things like I don't spend a lot of time on email. I think I spend, you know, I check it three times a day. And I'm also sit as the commander's executive. I, I have to talk to people if I want to know what's going on because if I'm sitting there waiting for emails to come in. I'm not getting anything done. Going through emails is the death of productivity. It really, it really is. So the less I spend on email, the more I'm spending on call Newport's deep work. The concept of spending an entire period of time just focusing on the things productivity. If I need to make a policy, I'm going to spend all the time I can making that policy and not let myself get distracted. So that's one of the ways that 
I focus on just that light work. So this the sense of minimalism is just like, I don't have to do all these things that uh, I think we kind of trap ourselves into thinking you have to, I have to answer every email. I have to solve every task. Not every task is urgent. Not every task is important. And not everyone else's problem is my problem, even though they might want it to be because they just want to not do the work. And so understanding like, where does everyone fit? What is actually important is probably the key tenet, I think, of minimalism. But how do you do that, right? So like, I well, how I have, this how is is a loaded how, okay? So it's first, how do I remove thing? How do you go through the process without thinking? The reason why I think a lot of people hold on to things is because we think we may use it later on mm. or it might become useful later or yeah. we've already spent the money on it. Well, that's not, that's, that's, that's silly. Why would I spend the money on this now and then probably lead it, need it later and then have to go spend double time if I give it away or I, I, you know, got rid of it now, I should have just kept it. So there's that. But then also when it comes to like some of the productivity work that you're talking about, it's like, how did you go through that process of letting go of the responsibility? Like we talked about before, like I'm responsible, right? And so how did you deal with that idea that like, I want to be responsible for what needs to happen. It ultimately, it will be my fault because I'm in a leadership role to, to allowing yourself to not do those certain things. Like how, like what's that mental angle? Like, did you, Mm, I would be anxious about that. I'm already (laughs) anxious thinking about it. Like what? Okay. I I say this, there's two parts to this. The first is, in your home life, how do you get rid of things you don't need? One of the tricks that I used, tricks is a strong word. I took a box and I, I used to have all these cables. As a tech guy, like we just, there's always a bundle of cables somewhere in the house. I took all those cables, put it in a box, put it in my garage for a month. If I didn't go find any of those cables, I donated them. I never went back to the box. And I did that for other things. And once I started getting rid of things, and seeing like, do I need this really? It became a lot easier to continue getting rid of things because you realize, yeah, you keep them for later, but it's like, what's the, what's the worst scenario here of me getting rid of this cable? I have to buy or borrow another one because it turns out I did need it in a very niche application. Now I know what that niche application is and now I have it for that application and it is being used. If it's a one-off thing, uh, it's probably not the big deal and I can find an alternative or a workaround. So dealing with all this stuff in my house really was just taking small piles, seeing if I really needed it, get rid of it if I don't. And if I did, then it highlighted something, okay, now I know that I need this thing. This is necessary. Make it a part of my life. When we come into the decision space, I think that's where it's a similar mindset, but I think the hardest part, the hardest hurdle, I don't know if there's an easy explanation of what I did other than go, what's the worst thing that happens if I do not do this? Is it someone gets mad at me? Is it I get a letter of reprimand? Uh, Do I get fired? Does someone get hurt? Does someone's career get affected? If it is not something that's going to hurt somebody else or uh, negatively impact them or reduce the effectiveness of the organization at all, why am I doing it? And to know what those are, you have to know what the priorities of your organization are. You have to know what the priorities of your work section are. You have to know what's important to all of your bosses, what's important to your team. If you don't know those things, you can't just stop answering emails. Are you a fan of Tim Ferriss at all? Do you know Tim Ferriss? You I don't heard the think name? I recognize that no. one. Uh, Tim Ferriss, he's, a, um, he's got a podcast. He's an author. He wrote The 4-Hour Workweek. But um, he's he's a speaker as well. And and one of the things he talks about, which I think is a great practice, and I've been doing something similar too, is where when you're making a decision, you know, sometimes the fear, like inaction, where does that come from? Procrastination. Usually that comes from fear. Generally some form of selfish fear, fear of losing something I have or not getting something I want, right? Or the fear of messing up because of the fear of what other people would think. But ultimately that boils back down to either if they think negative of me, I'm going to lose something I have or not get something I want, right? So the the selfish fear, and I mean selfish in, in the most gentle way. I don't mean to condemn ourselves or anyone listening, right? And so one of the practices he does is he lists out the fears, right? He lists out what's the worst possible scenario. Give, like what's, you know, will they murder me? I don't think so, right? Will they come to my house and burn down the building I live in? Probably yeah. not. Right. Like just get crazy with, with how, like, cause that's, you know, what's the worst that could happen. And when you start listing this out, you realize, oh, well, you know, I might just have to, like, it, it might be an uncomfortable conversation or it might be like, it's like, well, is that enough to be this anxious or to not take the action? Probably not. And it kind of relieves. So when I heard you talking about your practice, it reminded me of that. Um, and you mentioned Cal Newport a couple of times, deep work. I, you know, he's here in Georgetown, he's at Georgetown university. That's 
I'd, I'd love to have him on the show, actually. Um, that I was would just be inspired. Shameless, yeah, shameless plug to put that in here. Um, maybe we can uh, we can do like a joint interview or something with him. That'd be great. That would be awesome. Um, so, all right. Uh, and, and so, so what else have you, when you, when you were talking about minimalism, it made me think of the rule of 2020, 20, have you heard of this? Not me. So it's, it's, how's it go? If it's, if you haven't used it in 20 days and you can replace it in 20 minutes with $20 or less, get rid of it. That's a good rule. I like that. You know, 2020, 20, 20, right? 20, 20. So, and it just made me, yeah, like I, before we, we started this call, before we started this interview. Um, I, I just threw out, it was a charger. I don't even know what it was a charger for. It's funny that you mentioned the cables. I think that was, that's what they're so messy. They get tangled up and it's so frustrating to look at. And if you think about, if we're talking about, you make 70,000 decisions every day, just trying to untangle that thing and you're probably <laughs> using up like, you know what I mean? Such a waste of time. Yeah. The time, the energy. And then it's like, oh, now I got to go have this other conversation and make decisions about my life. Why would I want to do that? Like, you know, so, but if that just didn't exist and it wasn't there, how much free, how much more free would we be? Um, but you know, so, so we talked about minimalism before and, and really one of the things you brought up that I know, um, is that you're really passionate about is, you know, when you're not wasting your energy with, things around you and things that you don't want to be doing or that you shouldn't be doing. It's not a, a valuable use of your time. It frees you up to be of service to others, right? And to mentor others and to give all of yourself to others. I want to talk about, you know, some of your mentorship. I know that you are in the process of adopting. I am uh, adopting yeah. a teenager, 14. Yeah. Like, so I guess the question that comes to mind is why is this something that you're passionate about? Why are you doing like, what's driving you to do that? Why is this made a big deal in your life? And, you know, also with that is, you know, how are you mentored? Like I, I can imagine that someone came along and made an impression in your life. Okay. And that's why I did. All right. So we do have to go back in time a little bit. I think I was 17 high school, junior, I just got into my third high school, Glen Burnie High School. I spent, I think, 12 years after that effectively living in Glen Burnie. Uh, and of all the high schools I've been to, this is the one everyone said was going to be the worst high school. But this one actually, I think, changed me the most because I also went to uh, Anne Arundel um, High School, which, or excuse me, Arundel Mills High School, which was at um, near Gambrels. And these these schools are on very different social economic. Uh, backgrounds. Glen Burnie is kind of like the just barely made it high school, whereas Toronto was teaming. I had a hundred person band. I was in there. Everyone had gleaming instruments. I think there was like fourteen of us when I went to Glen Burnie, and we eventually got to being the size of like thirty or forty. But the sense of community there was really important because I had a friend of mine whose dad was a lieutenant commander retired in the Navy, Jeff Benson. Levy works at Boeing now. He had a son who just run around and I was an alumni supporter after I got out of the band and I would wind up being like this kid's older brother. Um, and pro tip, he's actually getting married this October and I'm one of his best men uh, or his groomsmen. So this kind of like full circle thing really hits home for me when I'm taking care of this kid and I'm also being mentored by this, uh, this former naval uh, submariner was like, hey, here are the things you could be doing with your life. Uh, serve others. And it feels good to help this kid who's kind of was like, kind of all over the place. You know, I was like nine-year-olds are, but as he watched him grow into this better and better person, that feeling was immense. And so I wound up doing kind of ad hoc youth mentoring where there was a time where I would be playing video games and I just keep hearing the same kids like, all right, let me talk to your parents. They'd actually get their parents on the line with me. Some of the parents, one of them flew me out to Houston to spend a weekend with them all. It was awesome. I had Santa Lake house and stuff like that. It was just like a really cool experience. But as you get older, you start going, all right, there's gotta be like a more structured way of doing this. It's gotta be like a system. You can't just kind of like hope someone notices. And even while I'm still helping all these other kids out, foster parenting kind of felt like the right fit. And there's a couple of different ways you can go about it. There's like being a case advocate, uh, there's being the actual parent, there's being an adoptive parent, where you're kind of still working with kids in the foster system, but from different perspectives. I did the traditional parent route back in 2017 in Illinois. The first kid I had 
also 14, inner city youth, very different lived experiences for me, even though I came from Detroit, Michigan, because I was very young when I left. And it was difficult to connect at first, but when we did, it was astounding. I watched him go from this angry teenager who couldn't focus his energy anywhere to starting to make reasonable connections with people. He was going to get anger management under his control. He was starting to really make a difference in his life. Uh, and unfortunately, some circumstances led to him leaving the program, but it was just astounding. But I kept butting up against the same problems where the kids are awesome to work with, but the system is a bureaucratic nightmare. One of the kids I had was 10. He came in with 22 medicines, including naproxen, and I had to give him all these medicines, like just giving this kid Motrin when he doesn't need it. And I have to wait until the doctor says, no, he doesn't need it, which could be weeks before you actually get a doctor's appointment. So I kept bashing up against the system. And so eventually I did leave after taking care of three kids, which fundamentally changed my life. It's, it's about who I am. I realized my passion, my social mission is to take care of kids. So when I came into California, I was like, I'm going to do it again. But I'm going to do it from the way that works for me, not the way that works for the system. And so I decided straightforward, I'm adopting kids out of the foster system where I get the benefit of being a parent my way. And the rules here are, so they're still strict. There's still things I have to do, but I have a lot more say in the process rather than a kid gets dropped in my lap. And then I'm trying to solve issues that I don't have control over. Yeah. Yeah. You're just, you at that point, you're just helping the child. You're not trying to solve a problem within the system. And then the child is also there. What, how are you, and what's, is that Sierra that you're talking about that you're getting? Yeah. So the organization I worked for previously uh, was Car Trust Family Solutions. The one I work for now is Stanford Sierra Youth and Families. Uh, and between the two organizations, there's some significant differences because of how the states are run. But California is just a better resource state. And so this organization I went to specifically because of their social media presence. They run a podcast that I was also recently featured on. And they minimize how many kids they have per social worker. So the social workers can be more involved in what's going on in the kid's life. And thus, as a parent, I have more information and more direct access to the services that I need. Yeah. Now, so, you know, I, I always like to dig into people's, uh, the, the way that they grew up. And I know you talked about, you know, uh, your parents a, a little bit, but what was it like for you growing up, right? Who was meaner to you between your mom and your dad? And like, what kind of, you know, what do you remember about childhood that really sticks out to you that you, you know, when you're, when you're talking to these kids and you're, you're adopting them, like for me, like I, you know, for me, it would, it would, I would want to and this isn't a criticism of my parents, but I would want to show my kids a little bit different of a mindset. And, um, you know, I, I would, I would talk to them a little bit differently. What about you though? Like, what was it like growing up? That is, that is the question. My biological father I knew for a very short period of time. And I didn't learn until later that the reason he passed away was because he got HIV due to, I was told a blood transfusion, but it was actually because he was shooting up uh, heroin or something. So I didn't know who he was as a person that led him to that decision. I only knew the person he chose to be on his deathbed. And so as he was interfacing with me, he was always to me, the impression I had is an honorable, dignified person who put himself as he is suffering above for me so that I would be able to have fun playing with my cars or whatever. I was from like four or five. So my images of him are very positive, even if he wasn't the positive person that he was for most of his life. That's what I have. When my stepdad comes in the picture, he had a lot of trauma that he's still dealing with today that he just didn't know how to deal with. And so when I talk about my teen who had anger management, I used a lot of the experiences dealing with my stepdad to help influence how I should not talk to my kid or how I should not interface with my kid. My stepdad was very uh, belt first questions later. He didn't wait to get my side of a story. He didn't really seem to care about my side of the story. If I got in trouble, that's it. You know, you'll never get in trouble like that again kind of stuff. My mom, on the other hand, was like a politician. There's sometimes she'd step in and there's sometimes she just had to let things go because she was catching in on being able to step in at a different way at a different time. So she was always kind of playing this line. We're not playing, that's the wrong word, but she was always kind of balanced on this line between being the wife she thought she wanted to be and the parent she knew she wanted to be. 
And eventually she did say enough's enough. And she divorced my dad. She separated, took me and my younger brothers. And from that point on, I think I was about 10 or 14, somewhere between there. It's a little fuzzy. It's been a while where we separate and I'm kind of coming into my own under her tutelage. And she's a much warmer person. She's more nurturing, but she also taught me to be independent, often by necessity. And so I have these these distinct images of who you could be as a person, this angry, kind of can't manage yourself and your traumas lifestyle, where you kind of just lash out at everybody else. And this kind of patient, sometimes gets upset and frustrated, but for the most part is doing and sacrificing so much for us. She was working two or three jobs, and she would put me in positions where I had to grow up, but I didn't have to be a grown-up. And that distinction is really important to me because it taught me responsibility without burdening me with a lot of the you know adultisms that come with that. And so as I when I grew into an adult, kind of still dealing with my own baggage, I think I was better off for it. And so I was more receptive when people did step into my life and try to mentor me like um, Mr. Benson. And it made it possible for me to look back on that time and then talk to these kids and go, I have some lived experiences that are very similar to you, especially any kid who's had uh, separations, who's moved around a lot because they've been in the system as a military brat. I'm very familiar with that. And that's a way to connect that other parents might not have if they've only lived in the same place their own life or if they've had a, I won't say anyone's ever had a perfect life, but even what I guess more people call a traditional life you don't have all that same experience maybe and it's harder to connect to these kids where every single kid in the foster system by definition is traumatized yeah yeah you said i mean there was a lot there i mean you know growing up so i didn't I, as an adult i've had to do a lot of work with understanding boundaries knowing what they are because it felt like separating me from you and that's not what they are and then understanding abandonment issues was like my parents never left me anywhere what are you talking about and that's not what that means right growing up too fast and i love i love what you, the way that you described the way that your mother allowed you to have additional responsibilities but she didn't you didn't have to grow up too fast in the sense of making adult decisions uh on your on your behalf you were able to mature and i think that's directly what we mean by abandonment issues where you weren't you had your childhood was abandoned you had to grow up too soon you had to make you had to be an adult at a child's age where that, you know, um, that's just not healthy. And for me, like I remember taking on a sense of pride that like, yeah, like I'm really responsible and people would say that about me. And, you know, it was almost like I wanted, cause I was looking for their approval when they said that I, that validated something within me that I wasn't getting from other places and I wasn't being supported in, in, in those kind of ways. And that's okay. Like I said, this is not a, this isn't a criticism. I just mean that that, that does create, the room for things like abandonment issues and for, uh, I don't want to use the word for a feeling of abandonment is probably a better way to put that or behaviors that are caused by the, that feeling of abandonment and a lack of boundaries. Um, you know, I would, I also would accept any sort of treatment from anybody, um, at, at any point in time. And these things developed in childhood and it sounds like, and I, I just, I know that kids in the foster, uh, in the, in the foster system generally experience these, how do you, how do you, when you talk to them, how do you kind of speak to them in a positive way to help them understand that they can stand up for themselves without lashing out, that it's okay to do that. They can, you know, not feeling guilty after you stand up for yourself is a hard thing for a lot of kids. How do you talk to them about that? Uh, and feeling like they're not enough or they shouldn't be saying certain things, or maybe they're on the other side of the extreme where they're just acting out. Um, you know, how do you be that responsible parent and, and also like, you know, take that to your workplace. Like, how does that, how does that experience in your personal life allow you to be an effective leader in your workplace? I think the first thing I had to learn is you have to be consistent. So if you say a message, you know, follow through that message. So when I'm talking to a kid and I tell them, Hey, it's okay to defend yourself if you are under attack, but you need to also understand what what you're being attacked by. Some kids have nightmares. I tell them if they're having nightmares, defend yourself from the thing that is harming you in your dreams and that dream space because no one else can. But in the real world, lean on your friends, lean on adults and know when, if you don't have it, then yes, defend yourself, but don't fight to win. 
to fight to not lose, but fight in a way that you are not causing damage, but you're making sure your adversary knows you're serious, you will defend yourself, and you become a less prime target. Because most bullies, for example, don't want to deal with someone who fights back. Then when you're dealing with kids who are just lashing out, they don't know where the source of it is. A lot of time it's just getting them out of an environment and bringing them to places that give them joy. Uh, a lot of kids love watching movies. A lot of kids are very athletic or some who don't like athletics like video games. And you find places where in those spaces where they can excel, you are consistently promoting their good behaviors and tendencies when they play. I have a kid who likes playing video games, but he gives up at the first sign of difficulty. I come and sit next to him. And I go, no, try that again. Try that again. And they'll get frustrated and they'll walk away. You give them some space. You come back, you try that again. Because the second they pass that difficult section, they go, oh, I can do it. It's like, I told you again. And you show them that you believe in them no matter what. And in worst case, you teach them what they need to do, take them back in the section and have them practice that skill. But you try to give them small little steps up a ladder where they can start to build confidence in themselves. And as you go through that, you can kind of give in and weave in some of the stories like, oh yeah, I struggle with this all the time. And it wasn't until recently I got better because I kept working at it that they, you start to build up credibility, you start to build up trust with them. It takes months, it can take years, but as you're consistently working with them, you can help them find success. I take that same kind of concept into the workplace where I have a lot of people who were putting in work all over the place because they felt everything was important and it's bringing them back in. These are the things that are important. Knock this out. Hey, you knock that out. And then I highlight it to everybody. Hey, look, so-and-so did this awesome thing. This is what we need to do for that going forward. They're your POC for that. And then keep building them up and letting them know and then I can walk away and they just know what to do. And they start focusing on the right things. And they, they start feeling less stressed, so stressed because you can't erase a lifetime of trying to grab everything. But you can at least create a space for them to just manage even five fewer things than they were when they started. Yeah, you're celebrating those small wins and you're teaching them to respond to dopamine in their brain a little bit differently, right? The dopamine is coming from positive reinforcement and doing well and seeing that it's okay to do that and they're allowed to, and they are enough to do well. And you're doing that both in your personal life with, with the kids and you're doing that at work too. Now the competition is let's see who can, can do the next thing. Well, yes. And then while always, especially at work, I write so many awards packages. I am constantly pushing people up for recognition and figuring out if we have eight categories and I've got nine people who've done excellent work, I find a way to recognize all nine. Even if some of them can't go all the way up the higher headquarters chain where we're pushing up to see who wins the highest, I could try to find a coin or I could try to find, you know, just some local recognition where I just come and like, just drop a cake on their table or something like that. Just find ways to, to, show, to showcase and celebrate those wins. Yes. Yeah. Would you consider yourself to be a grateful person? I am extremely grateful. Uh, and I think I think you and I have a very similar experience in that we were at the lowest points in our lives and being able to look back on that, everything else is in a different perspective. Uh, I talked to you about how when I was 12, I thought everything was so bad in my life that I needed to commit or I needed to attempt to end my life. And looking back on it, it really wasn't that bad, but it was pretty miserable for a kid without the, the sense of perspective of understanding why these things were happening to me. Why is my stepdad so seemingly so abusive when he, I don't understand that he doesn't understand what he's doing. And when I walked into my mom's room to take those pills, like that was a moment where I was committed to this idea that this is it. I will never feel pain ever again. And when it didn't work because I'm fairly confident they were just sugar pills, thankful for me. It's just like, well, I, that's it, right? I can't even I can't even do that, right? And having to grow from that. Like once you're at your lowest point, there's nothing to be but grateful. Yeah, I mean I so yeah, we we talked about that earlier and you know that like I I postponed my suicide to watch the Law and Order season finale, right? Law and Order SVU at the time. And you know, the reality is I, I may have been looking for any excuse and that was just what was convenient at the time. But I remember having that feeling like I was ready to go and I was like, you know what? It's four o'clock and I, at least I'll have this. It's only four o'clock that show, you know, the episode doesn't come on till nine. I'm just going to wait. 
And, and my, you know, for me, like I was, I was drinking a half a gallon of vodka every day, two 22 ounce beers, smoking two packs of cigarettes, cutting myself with a little tiny screwdriver. I mean, I was, I was living a very different life, being a very different person. And, uh, that's part of my story. Right. And I, I kept that as hidden as possible. I was the Jekyll and Hyde and kept that as hidden as possible from my, my professional life. And, uh, until I, I couldn't hide it anymore and, and I was ready to go. And there was that feeling the next morning of like, oh, we, we passed out. Like we, we slept through this, like, you know, and thankfully I did, but you know, and, 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 and so for me, I call that the jumping off point, right? It was a moment in time that that next couple of weeks, right. Was my jumping off point. I had hit, you know, rock bottom. I, I was, you know, at my lowest and it was a moment in time where I, I couldn't keep doing what I was doing, but I was uncertain at the time about what to do next. And for me, it was both emotionally and physically painful. And I ask everyone on the show about their own personal jumping off point. It sounds like, was that yours or is there something else? I think that's the one I didn't recognize as it was until I got to like this point in my life. Because yeah. at, in the moment, I'm like, I'm too young to really appreciate what had just happened and how fortunate I was. But as I grew and was able to look back on that, yeah, absolutely. That is the point where whether I knew it or not, I became more accepting to this is just how life is. Sometimes life is miserable. Sometimes life is awesome. And I kind of just stopped caring in a sense, not like apathy, but in a sense, like I wasn't holding everything in. And there are these microaggressions I would have where, you know, there are some things I just didn't know how to deal with. But from that point on in my life, when I get good things, my, my highs are higher and my lows are kind of like, eh. And then I reach this point of equilibrium where I'm pretty mellow person most times. And, you know, sometimes I'll go like this and sometimes I'll go like that, but I've kind of reached a point where, you know, life's what it is. Sometimes it's exciting. Sometimes it's not. I'm grateful to continue having one and I'm grateful to help other people realize what they have. And oh, I think it's just changed how I fundamentally think about the world. Yeah. I think the trick is to live life on life's terms, right? I mean, I, whenever I'm, I'm upset, you know, or unaccepting of life being on life's terms, it's, you know, that's when I find myself in trouble, right? Acceptance is the answer. But at, at that age though, what, you know, cause I was 31 when, when I was going through everything I was going through, I was a little bit homeless kind of sort of like I slept at Shady Grove Metro. You're from around here. I, um, I know there. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, you know, I've, I've come a long way and I, I and I'm, I'm proud of that, but I, the most I'm, I'm most proud that I get to be an example for other people and be of service to other people. And that's why I started to open up a little bit about some of that part of my life on the show, even though, um, you know, if we have a varied audience, uh, sometimes hopefully that doesn't put anyone off, but for those that, uh, needed to hear that, at least we, we talked about it and, you know, but at that age, but what I was getting at is that I was an adult and I was able to get, it was up to me to ask for the help and, and thankfully it was there, but what did you do at age 12? Did you tell your parents about that or did you, I mean, who do you turn to? Cause the, the relationship you had with your parents doesn't sound like it would have been the one that you would have wanted to go and talk to them anyway. No, no. In fact, my mom didn't even know about it until I put on master sergeant at a promotion ceremony where I talked about having to be vulnerable as a leader. And I, I that's the first time I ever told her that story. Uh, my stepdad doesn't know, and I'm probably never going to tell him unless he have to listen to this podcast. The, the, frankly, I didn't have a support system then. I think at this time in my life, I'm in California, Camp Pendleton, for the first or second time. Again, kind of fuzzy. It was a long time ago. I don't remember there being a lot of great school uh, systems and supports for that kind of a thing. I do remember that I had this after-school club and a bunch of friends that I would ride bikes around with. And frankly, I think after that, I remember getting headaches all the time. And it's actually what started leading me towards drinking less caffeine and soda. It was like, that was also giving me headaches and just kept making me think about that moment. And so I would just get out and escape. I would just go and be anywhere but in my house as much as possible. And then when I was in this house, I never went in my parents' room again. And it, now that I'm thinking about this, yeah, I never went back in my parents' room ever again. Um, at any point in that house specifically. In other houses, yeah, I was like, because I'm screwing around my little brother chasing around. But then... No. And I, I think it was like a subconscious thing, just like stay away from that moment. I, I don't ever believe I unpacked it until I was already in the military where they start talking about, hey, here's where you can go for suicide services. Here's where you can go for mental health. And while I did not use those services, just hearing people talk about it 
made it so that I could talk about it. And I started going to Toastmasters clubs and expressing what had happened and sharing this with people. And that lifted like a weight I didn't realize I was holding my whole life. And that was back in 2018, I think, when I really, really was at peace with that moment in my life. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty recent, right? You're talking 12 years old to, to a couple of years ago. How long was that? Well, see, I think I was 28, 29. Because uh, yeah. I'm 34 and I just turned 34. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, that's a long time. I mean, I talked to a lot of people. So the whole human method that I talked about earlier and how I take people through that, I mean, for that emotional fitness piece and the work we do there, um, I found a lot of freedom with a lot of different things, right? Therapy and a spiritual program of action and all of the work that I do um, on, on, on myself. And it, it really does being a whole human is less about learning new things and adding more as, as much as it is unlayering ourselves from other things that are weighing us down. And I didn't realize how much weight from certain things I had been carrying. And I, and I see it in the faces of a lot of people that they don't realize how much they're carrying with this, with them for, and for how long. And, and it's okay to drop the rock. For some, sometimes it feels like I've held on to this idea or this belief, or this is what I think for so long that it's hard to let go of, right? It becomes a part of us and it's how we identify ourselves. And if, if I let go of that piece and I'm not like that, then what am I going to be? What if I'm something bad? You know, but what if you're, you know, but then <clears throat> that has yet to be the outcome. But did you, when you were finally kind of just laying that bag, putting that down, right? You held on to it for as long as you needed to. Um, when you were putting it down, what did it feel like? And, and you know, what, what were you doing? Like, so you were doing Toastmasters. Like, did you ever go, you never went to uh, any like therapy or did anything with it? I did have school counseling when I was a kid. Uh, it was a different school that I went to and I had a counselor and I, I remember him giving me like Cheetos and we played checkers a lot. Um, and I remember a distinct moment where I told him that, I had been spanked and the whole school got involved where they were checking me for like uh, bruises and stuff like that. It was like the one time where I mentioned it had happened, but I didn't have any bruises, but it really got me thinking about that was like, I, I, I think that's when I clued in and like, wait, you know, this isn't normal. Cause I thought I just had to go to the counselor because like they just make random kids go or because I was the only African American in the school and I was getting picked on. And it was just like this whole thing. But that was when I was really clued in and like, not only does this feel bad to be spanked, but like I'm, my parents might not even doing it right. Where like the school is now concerned because I've never seen a principal since act that fast to step in and, and review this so resource officer, everything. Um, and so I, the counseling I got, I would say wasn't all that great, but it probably helped. It, it's hard to say how much help because as a kid, I was just like, I'm just here because they tell me to be here. And I'll talk about a few things. And the one time I did accidentally say something that, you know, stepdad said, never tell people about this. I got a reaction. And that was a powerful moment. That was a powerful feeling. Yeah. They're keeping secrets in the, in the household, right? Everything like I grew up in a house where there, we had secrets, like, you know, just don't talk about this. And like, this is, you know, family business and, and, and all that other stuff. I mean, and all that did was just create a lot of dysfunction that I've had to unpack and unlearn in my, in my adult life. And it affected me every, every step of the way. And, and again, it's not a criticism. You know, I think people use the tools that they have and if, if they're not great tools and they were never taught and helped, then, you know, what do you expect them to do? But I've also realized that making excuses for other people and not, not working through that, uh, is a form of denial. Right. And, and, it, and I owed it to myself to work through a number of different things. And because I needed so much help, I've been able to help so many other people. Right. So now I'm able to be of service to others. And it sounds like you're, you're doing a lot of that too. Um, you know, I, I want to like, how do you practice gratitude in your daily life? Give me a part of your daily routine before we go. Okay. Um, okay. So I have this 14 year old, right? Uh, he's a great kid. We've been a great match. And earlier in my life, the hardest thing I had to work to get over, and this is true story is saying thank you to kids. I would tell them to do a chore and go, good, you did a thing that you're supposed to do. And I would not celebrate the fact that they were doing this thing because it was an expectation. That always created friction. So what I've gotten better at doing now is I have him do the dishes. So this so gets my, my heavy thing. I hand it to him, but I am so, so much more aware of saying, thank you for doing the dishes. That takes a lot of weight off of my shoulders and it teaches you something valuable. You gotta do the dishes. 
So I find ways where I am constantly hugging, I'm rubbing his head, I'm letting him know and see how affectionate I am. And as I deal and interface with other people, even if I'm not super thrilled, I thank you for whatever you gave me to help with. If they give me information, thank you for that. If they provide something that I can share with others, hey, everyone, thank this person because they did this thing. I'm always saying thank you. I'm always giving gratitude and I'm always sharing my good feelings with others. Yeah, no, I love that. Andrew Huberman. Are you familiar with Andrew Huberman? He's I have heard this name. Yeah, yeah, no, he's over at Stanford University. Um, He talks about gratitude and it's not, not that making a gratitude list is, is somehow bad, but what the brain latches on to experiencing gratitude, right? And neurons that fire together, wire together. We hear that a lot, right? And so if we want to build these new synapses in the direction of being more and more grateful, it's watching other people experience gratitude. It's listening to other people share gratitude and it's us being in the moment of gratitude more so than it is just making a list. So, you know, what I'm, what I'm keying in on you're, you're practicing, you know, when you're saying thank you, you're sharing in a sense of gratitude with those other people constantly and with everyone around you and you're, you're wiring your brain to continue to do that more and more. So that's awesome. Um, yeah, well, listen, I really appreciate you spending some time. I know that you're busy and We've got a time difference between us, but uh, I just want to say thanks again for joining us here on the DC Local Leaders Podcast, sharing your sharing your message. What was the name of the organization that you support? Again, I want to make sure that people get that. Ah, yes. Stanford Sierra Youth and Families. Yeah, that's awesome. So we'll definitely check that out. It's uh, what SSYAF.org for anyone listening. And um, yeah, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Philip. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders on Instagram at DC Local Leaders or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.